Come on, there we go. Uh, first thing coming up due today, we have the homework number three. So I will should have homework four for you next week. I'll have it. I'll have that ready to give you next week, uh, which will be last homework. Tech. Well, there's five homeworks, but I only grade four. So if you did the first, if you do the first four, you don't technically have to do the last one. If you missed one of them, then you can definitely do that as a makeup. So there will be a fifth one that will cover the last couple chapters. But if you did the first four, happy with your grades on them, you can kind of take the fifth one off. Just review the questions for the final. So that homework number three is due today, and I'll hopefully get those done and graded back to you as soon as I can, uh, since we have an exam coming up next week. Um, also next week, I'm looking at your solar observations for the final time. And then in another couple of weeks, we'll be doing the project. Uh, I'll be going through in class. We will take one class day and go through all of the calculations to make the graph so that by the time you leave that day, we'll have all the calculations and graphs ready to go. So that'll pretty much take one whole lab day and will actually count as one of your labs in addition to counting towards the project. Uh, a week from today, we do have the exam, third exam, covering chapters 17 through 22. So take a look at those. Don't forget to get your key points sheets printed out. I do have all of those ready for those chapters. And I'll be working on getting those for chapters 23 through 27, which is the next set. I have those all ready for you. Hopefully, again, by next week, I'll have those all ready for you as well so you can use them for the, re for the reviewing. Also, take a look at those review quizzes, which are up there on uh, D2L, because you can get a little bit of extra credit. And they are the same questions that I'll be using for the exam. So some of those questions you'll get to re-see again a week from today when we do the third exam. And then finally, coming up the following week, I have uh, the third article review due on the 13th of November. If you did the first two and you did well on them, skip it. Save your time, especially if you got, I don't remember how many pe couple people got a perfect scores on them. There's no use doing the third one because if you got a 50 and a 50, well, you can get another 50, but then I drop your lowest grade, which is dropping a 50. So you did all the work for nothing, essentially. If your lowest grade is a 45, well, you could drop the 45 and get a 50. Maybe those five points will make a difference in the end. You have to decide whether it's worth your effort to spend the time going into the doing the review right now versus working on other things. What's going to be the best use of your time in terms of the amount of points? So I will drop your lowest article review if you do do all three. But if you skipped one, do this one. Because obviously that's a big thing to get that uh, caught up and drop a zero out of, out of your grade. But if you did the first two and did fine, there's really no reason to bother doing the third one. All right, questions assignment-wise. Yes? I'm sorry? You can submit it on D2L, yes. Yeah, you, can, you have until 6 o'clock tomorrow morning if it's there. So after starting, it's starting at 6 o'clock, it's counted as late. So as long as it's in before 6, it's good. All right, other? All right, well, picture of the day for today. Actually, it's a short video clip uh, put together. This is the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft, which is out in the asteroid belt in between the planets Mars and Jupiter. So it is out there and it is in orbit around an asteroid known as Ryugu. And it is studying that asteroid. It's actually landed a couple little hoppers on the asteroid to kind of jump around and explore it. But 
the big thing that this uh, craft is going to do is actually landing on the asteroid, take, bringing, getting some samples, and bringing them back here to Earth. So we'll actually have some pieces of this, astro of this asteroid here on Earth to be able to study. Now, the reason that's so important is that the asteroids are the building blocks. These are the kind of things that billions of years ago were combining together to build our Earth. So we're looking at the building blocks of the Earth so we can study what the things were like that went into making our planet. Yeah, they're all here, right? We have all those building blocks. They're here because we're here. They're part of our planet. However, over Earth, they've been melted and changed over the formation of the Earth. So the things that actually formed the Earth, while the material is still here, it's been changed. It's been modified by the heat, pressures, weathering, all sorts of effects here on Earth. Volcanic activity, all of those things have changed what's going on, what's, what's, what they're like. Here we can get samples of what that original material was like. So that's one of the reasons that this is very important. Uh, this is called ascending from the asteroid. So I'm just, it's just a 12 second clip. And it's just kind of showing it as it moves up. You can see the shadow of the craft. Oops. Shadow of the craft down there as it kind of moves up further and further. What it was doing was practicing, getting ready for its landing, looking for a good landing site. Because if you look at the asteroid itself, it's very rocky. And if you land in the wrong spot and your craft tips over, mission's over, right? If it's going this way, there's no way to launch it back out into space if it's kind of pointing sideways at an angle. It's not going to be able to relaunch it. So what it's doing is going down. It went down to about just about 20 meters, 60 feet or so above the surface, looking at different areas, trying to find a good area to land and kind of practicing that up and down because uh, so we can actually get, when we collect samples, we can actually then bring it back to Earth. And it's scheduled to actually land there uh, sometime next year and then collect the samples and then bring those back. And I think, I didn't look up the dates, it's like 2021 or 2022. It'll take it a couple years to get back here. So actually traveling back into Earth and then coming into Earth orbit, being able to pick those back up and collect those samples to be able to study them. So, questions? Yeah? Yes, yes there was. That was a couple of years ago. It was the Rosetta spacecraft. It actually, well the Rosetta craft actually orbited the comet. There was a lander that landed on the comet as well. Um, in fact, let's see. We can, uh, where is search? There's search. We can take a look at that. In fact, I think this is one of the images actually from, this is from orbit, this isn't actually the lander, uh, but this is actually an image of what a comet looks like. A little bit different than what we were looking at with the asteroid. Uh, comets are kind of icy bodies, they're, they're what the big planets are made up of. But there was this craft, there were craft called Rosetta. It did have a lander that went to land on the comet. Unfortunately, it was not successful. It did land successfully, but you got to remember these things are tiny. You know, we're used to landing something on Earth, and Earth's gravity just it plops down. So if we drop something nicely on Earth, it's not going to bounce very much. These things are only 20 or 30 kilometers. Their gravity is minuscule. So when you land something on it, bounce, it bounces really well, and this one bounced into the shade. So solar panels, kind of useless. 
and it was able to get an hour or a couple hours worth of data before its batteries ran dry, but it was unable to readjust solar panels and put them in the right direction to be able to recharge those batteries. So the, the mission itself was successful. Rosetta was great. It orbited for over a year studying the comet, but the actual lander portion was not as successful as we had hoped for. So, good. That picture I won't ask you a question about for the exam. So, and, and this would be the last one that I would be asking about, the ones next week. That way I can get the exam made up instead of waiting until the last few pictures. So this will be the last one from the previous exam to this one will be the ones that we cover. Not this one, the one, the one we actually looked at for today. That would be the ones that I would cover for the extra credit portion of exam three. All right, questions, questions. Otherwise, I should mention um, the death of a satellite, it, what, which is right after class. It was actually the after, Tuesday afternoon that uh, NASA announced the uh, final end of the Kepler satellite, which is one we just talked about not that long ago in terms of studying the exoplanets. Now, we knew it was coming. It was running out of fuel, and you knew it was going to run out soon. But officially on Tuesday afternoon, they announced that it had run out of fuel and its mission is done because once you're out of fuel, there's no way to stabilize the orbit in space, so you can't keep it pointing in a specific direction. However, there is another satellite that's taking over for it, uh, the TESS, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is up and has just started this summer and is already starting to get some good observations. So Kepler, one we talked about, of those 3,600 planets that I talked about back in Chapter 21, uh, I think it found about two-thirds of them. So two-thirds of the planets that we knew had been discovered by that satellite. So I thought I should mention that as well, since that occurred since our last class. All right, other questions? Because otherwise what I'm going to do, we've got a little bit of time. I'm going to go ahead and start on chapter 23 for next week, because we have two chapters to go through. Um, I will put up, I know some people follow along with the slides, I don't have them up for chapter 23 because I probably have only planetary ones up there and they got kicked over so I apologize for that. I did put them up, I did put the new ones, I just put the new ones up but I did that about 12 minutes ago, like a minute or two before class so I apologize. Uh, I'll get them all set up and ready after I get back to my class. Um, so I printed the keynotes for 2021 and 22, but I couldn't find 17 through 19. 17 through 19 would be in lesson. Uh, let's see which one they're in. They are in lesson. I have to remember which chapter. Uh, where are we? Yeah, they're they're in the lesson right before the the twenty and twenty one. I'd have to remember which one that is, and that would be. Oh, am I in the right class? No, I'm in the wrong class. That would help if I'm actually in your class. It might help. Uh, let's see content. And they are, I just loaded, that's the chapter 23 slides that I just put up. So it was understanding the stars and review materials. And you should have 17, 18, and 19 there. So go back to lesson seven, those, those should all be there for you. And then I will have the lecture slides up. I have them up now, but I will put up the actual ones that belong to this chapter. And for the next couple of chapters, I'll get those set up. So I apologize. Uh, for the other ones, I ran a little bit behind getting those, getting those ready. Uh, let's see. So, and right now they're up in just one 
big set, I'll put them in the individual sets. That was the only way I could do it really quickly right before, right before class as we were getting started. So chapter 23 is, come on, there we go, um, is going to be looking at the ends of stars' lives. We started on this a little bit in chapter 22, but we're going to look in a lot more detail here. So this will be part of the next unit. Again, for the exam, I'm only going through chapter 22, which is what we finished up last time. Uh, chapter 23 and 24 we'll be going through today and then next Tuesday. I should get through most of those. But this is we want to look at you know, what the end state of a star's life will be. What is going to end up being there? And we went through, we talked about planetary nebulae last time, end state of something like the sun as it expels its outer layers. But now we really want to look at you know, what happens afterwards, what's left behind. Because that planetary nebula stage that we see here, this is another example of one. I showed you a few pictures I think last time. This is another example of a planetary nebula. It's a very short stage. It, doesn't la it only lasts tens of thousands of years. Which again, out of billions of years of a star's life, it's you know, just a few seconds worth very short time frame. And these outer layers continue to expand out as they get further and further out. They're further away from the, from the core that's left behind. And eventually they'll, dis they'll just dissipate out into space, become seed material for new stars. So they'll become part of the next generation of stars, that, that material, but eventually it'll disappear. So a planetary nebula that we see tens of thousands of years from now will be completely gone. So the part that we really want to look at today is what's left behind in the core. So what material is left behind? Some of the material is expelled out into space. The core is going to be what's left, what we're actually going to be able to see. We could come back in millions of years, billions of years, and we're still going to be able to see it there. First, for this section, we want to look at small cores. Things that are about one to one and a half, no more than one and a half times the mass of the sun. I say 1.4 there because there is a very specific limit uh, that something, something happens. If you go more than 1.4, it's going to be one type of object. If we go less than 1.4, it's another one. So what we really want to look at is those that are under 1.4. So our sun will be here. Right? Our sun has one solar mass. Right? The mass of the sun is one, one solar mass. So its core can't be more than the mass of the entire sun. And some of its material is going to be expelled out into space, so the core will actually be even less than that over time. So we're going to look at that. And this includes about 99% of all the stars in the universe. Anything that has an original mass of about 10 solar masses or less will do this, will become a planetary nebula. That means they're going to lose all of that mass. Now our sun doesn't have to lose anything to become, uh, for its core to remain stable. But even stars that have five times the mass of our sun will lose enough mass that their core will come in under that limit. And that's the core is what we want to look at. So what's going to be left behind after all of this is done? So what we'd look at and what we're going to have to look at is what we call degenerate stars. Uh, degeneracy is when we start pushing things really close together. Quantum mechanics becomes important and I'm not going through any details of quantum mechanics here. But 
Essentially, it's the, it's the physics of studying things that are really tiny. Atomic scales, subatomic scales. And when they con- what happens is that core contracts and it pushes things. It's got intense gravity. Right? This is the mass of the sun and it's no longer got an energy source to keep it spread out. So everything starts to collapse down and things get as close together as they possibly can. As it does this, there's eventually a limit. As you push things close, push atoms closer and closer together, keeping their identity as atoms. So we still have atoms, we have nuclei, and we have electrons around them. As you push them closer together, the electrons start repelling each other. Right? The closer you try to push them, eventually those electrons will start to push against each other and hold the star up because there's no energy source. We're done with energy sources now. What's left behind is just that core. So if you leave gravity to its own devices, all it's going to do is pull it down and make something we'll look at later called a black hole. But there are energy so- there are sources that will give it some, uh, some stability. And what this, cre- what this means is when we talk about it being degenerate is we've got the electrons as close as they can possibly be together. If you try to get them any closer, then they're trying to occupy the same space at the same time, which isn't possible. You can't have two electrons in the same space at the same time. And that's what we call the Pauli exclusion principle after the scientist who came up with it. It's just a quantum mechanical limit. You can get the electrons so close, and you can't get them any closer. So that provides a force, a pressure, to support the star. No energy generation, just that you've got the electrons as close as they can possibly get. In order to do this, you essentially have to compress something the size of the sun down to the size of the earth. There's a big difference, right? The sun is this big, the sun is this big, the earth is this little tiny little dot. All you're doing, you're not changing anything. It's still all the atoms that it had before are still exactly the same. All you've done is crush out all the space in between the atoms. That's it. So you can imagine how much empty space there is in us. In anything here on Earth, the Earth itself, if you could get rid of that empty space and just crush the atoms as close together as they could possibly go, you, know, you can take the sun and make it the size of the Earth. You can imagine that you could take the Earth and make it something you know, just a few centimeters in size. Incredibly small. That's just getting rid of the empty space between the atoms. We can actually, we'll actually see later we can crush it even smaller if we get rid of the space inside the atoms. But for a star like the sun, that's not going to happen. Those electrons are going to get closer and closer together. Eventually, they're going to find that they're trying to occupy the same space at the same time. And that'll start pushing them apart. That'll hold them up, keep them from collapsing any further. So this is the way to support the star against gravity. We can actually hold it up. And it will not begin to, it will not collapse any further. This is what we call a white dwarf star. It can have the mass of the sun up to 1.4 times the mass of the sun. It can have that mass, but it will be crushed down to the size of the earth. The density becomes incredible. And again, all you're doing is crushing out the space between the atoms. You can take, I think it's a teaspoon of material, weighs many tons. Many, many, I mean millions of tons. You've just, all you've done is crush out that empty space. So again, we think, you know, think things are so solid here on Earth, that's how much empty space there is. You can take, you know, buildings and just get rid of that space, you could crush them down to teaspoon sizes just by getting rid of all of that empty space within them. 
Um, I give you the other comparison there, a million times the density of water. So, and all, again, all we've done, this is what we call degeneracy because there's now a limit. It becomes what we call degenerate because it can't, you can't get those particles any closer together. But it's now stable. Right? Just like our sun was stable for billions of years producing energy, now it's completely stable. It's just going to sit there. Nothing else can happen to it. It's not going to collapse. It's not going to compress down any further. There's no other energy source that will occur. So whatever it is, it's just there. It's hot. Remember that core got up from millions of degrees up to billions of degrees depending on the mass. It got really, really hot. All it does now is sits there and cools off. So if there's nothing external, there are, if you have external influences, then other things can happen. And we'll look at those at the end of this chapter uh, when we come back to that on Tuesday. But for right now, essentially that white dwarf is just going to remain stable. It's there. And it's just going to sit there. So this is what will happen to our sun. Our sun will go through all of this. It will use up all of its energy. That core will collapse down, can slowly condense down, get smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually those electrons will start pushing against each other, holding it up. And it will remain completely stable. It'll just sit there. So if you come back in 6 billion years, 6, 7 billion years, our sun, the solar system would be gone, wiped out, burned up, but the sun will still be there. There'll be a white dwarf star. Planetary nebula phase will be gone. It'll just be a white dwarf star. Come back another few billion years after that, it'll still be sitting there. Nothing will change. It's going to get small. It's going to get smaller. It's going to get cooler. All it's going to do is cool off. It's the only thing to do. It has some temperature, hundreds of thousands of degrees, and it's slowly going to cool off over time. So it will change. But it's just going to sit there. The only thing it's going to do is cool off. Nothing else will happen inside it. it will nothing else will happen inside it. It's not going to change into anything else. Now this limit, this 1.4 solar mass limit, is called the Chandrasekhar limit after the physicist who came up with this. That doesn't show up too well. Sorry about that. Uh, but how massive, how much material can actually be there in this? Um, there's two curves here. One shows up really well. The other is a little too light in color. Uh, it'll show up better. It's actually a green color and does not show up very well here. Uh, you can see it. They match up very similar when you're way out here at small masses. But it kind of comes down and then it reaches this point right here. And essentially it turns and goes almost straight down. That's just the, that's what we mean is the limit to how massive it can be. These are calculations that uh, the physicist uh, Chandra Shekhar did. Uh, almost a set, about a century ago, and calculated you know, what was the maximum mass of material that could be supported by this. Now, everything has some maximum mass, right? Tables here, if we start loading books on them and books on them, and we put one book on it, table's not going to change. But if I start putting books you know, stacked up to the ceiling, and then we take it outside and keep stacking, eventually I reach a limit where the table can no longer hold those books. I put the, one, you know, the book that broke the table's back. One, one more book will eventually crush the table. Same thing with these stars. That electrons have a lot of pressure. They can hold up more than the mass of the sun. But if you put enough material there, eventually they give up. Eventually they crush in upon themselves. So there is a limit. That's what we mean by this 1.4 solar mass limit. That's as much as you can get. If you get any more than that, 
So you get right up to that limit and you start adding a little bit more material. Those, that's, that's when the table collapses. Well, that one extra book, well that one extra atom eventually would, cause, would go from right at the edge of stability to causing it to collapse down further. So eventually uh, those, those, those will get, they would collapse. So what I'm saying, what would happen if you had more mass? Because we have stars that are much more massive. So you could imagine situations where the core would have 1.5 solar masses, two solar masses, three solar masses. They cannot remain as a white dwarf. There's too much material for the electron degeneracy, the electron pressure to be able to hold them up. What we do see that's interesting is that the white dwarf stars, normally you think right, something more massive is bigger and bigger and bigger. These don't. These get smaller. So a more massive white dwarf can actually be smaller than a less massive white dwarf. Think of that as the excess pressure pushing on it. It pushes it down, it pushes it down. Not a big difference, but one might be a little bigger than the Earth. 1.2 times the, ma- the size of the Earth, the diameter, and the other might be 0.8. As you put more and more pressure there, it crushes everything closer and closer together as you approach this limit. So in terms of the size, you know, what is the size of these? Um, in terms of solar radii, they actually get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the, the blue line essentially doesn't count relativity in it. The green line counts relativity, which is what matters when you get to these really high temperatures, but you, really high pressures and small sizes. But you can see you go from a fraction here, this is 0.03. When you get down here, it's 0.01. That means it's three times smaller. So you're really compressing everything down until you get right up to that limit. So do these types of weird stars really exist? Uh, white dwarf stars, yes they do. We've detected them many times. And in fact, there's a, here's an example. Here's a picture of one. Uh, this is, is this Sirius? I don't remember if I said which one it was. I didn't say which one it was. Yes, I did. Sirius B. So Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. If you got in the morning now, you can see Orion constellation down to the lower left of it you see Sirius the dog star uh, for the great the great hunting dog following the hunter and that's the bright star that you see it's the brightest star other than our Sun that we see in the sky what you don't see is that it has a companion star and you can see it in the image here there's Sirius really bright there's this little tiny dot orbiting it planetary sized but it's not a planet because we can figure out its mass and its mass is over, uh, over the mass of the sun, but it's compacted down. So this is a white dwarf that we've known of for a long, long time. We can detect them in binary systems. It's an easy way to be able to see them. We can also sometimes detect them when they're all by themselves. But even though they're hot, they're tiny. Trying to detect something Earth-sized, light years away, is hard. Even if it's really hot and putting out a lot of energy, it's tr- small size means that it's not, it's, it means that it's really, really hard to see. It's overall luminosity is very small. And if you remember, we had those on the HR diagram. They were way down in the lower left-hand side. They were relatively faint objects. Another way that you can detect them that we'll look at later on is through mass, mass being transferred. If these are close enough together, Remember, this may be tiny, but it's got the mass of a star. So if it's close enough to another star, it can actually pull material from it. 
And as it does that, we can actually make some detections. So there are some that we can detect that way as well. So white dwarfs do exist. We can detect them, we can measure their masses, and we can find out that these, these are the end states of almost every star we're going to look at. There's a few, which are even more interesting, that form, form other things, but those are really only the most massive stars. So what's going to happen to that white dwarf? I said it's got no energy source. So it's not fusing hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon. All it's doing is cooling off. It's collapsed down, it's stable. Yeah? So all of the white dwarf stars were different stars at some point? Yes. They would have been stars like our sun. They could have been stars a little more massive. Essentially, the white dwarf is the core of the star that's left behind. Remember, the, the outer layers got pushed out. That formed the pretty planetary nebula that you get to see for a short time. The core is what's left behind. But they were other, they could have been more massive or less massive than our, than our sun. And their masses can vary as well. They can be a tenth the mass of our sun for a really small star. Or they could be up to 1.4 times the mass of our sun. But the only thing they can do, because they don't have an energy source, is cool off. So it's not going to find any new energy source, any new stability. It might start off at a million degrees and go down to a few hundred thousand degrees, to hundreds of thousands of degrees, to tens of thousands of degrees, and that's all it's going to do. Because it's so tiny, it doesn't cool off very fast. It's got a very small surface area, which is how the energy can get away from it. So it has a lot of energy contained in it. And it cannot, it takes it a very long time. So as it cools off, it's going to be a very bluish white when it starts off. And in fact, most of them we see are like that. They look like a bluish white star. And they then begin to cool off, cool down, and it will go from being bluish white down to what? Down to a more white, just a white color, down to yellows, and then finally into oranges and reds and infrareds. And essentially, once it's putting out most of its light in the infrared, it'll be dark to us. We won't be able to see it with a regular, ordinary telescope. And it will become what we call a black dwarf. Now, that takes billions of years. Because it's so tiny, it can only lose energy really slow. It doesn't have a big surface area to be able to lose energy. So this is going to take billions of years. So even right now, after 14 billion years, the first stars that became white dwarfs are still white dwarfs. There are no black dwarfs. They will eventually, eventually occur. But it takes so much time for them to cool off that there has not yet been enough time in the history of the universe to be able to form a black dwarf star. So this is eventually, this is where if you could fast forward hundreds of billions of years into the future, these would be probably the most populous objects in the universe. It's what everything is going to turn into. Our sun, almost every star that we've ever seen, is going to turn into something like this. So eventually they will dominate the universe. Right now they just haven't had enough time to form because it can take them tens of billions, hundreds of billions of years to cool off. Our universe is 14 billion years old. If it takes 100 billion years just to throw out a number, well, we're only 14 billion years. We've got to wait another, history, another length of time of the history of the universe, another 14 billion, another 14 billion, another 14 billion, to get up to the time where these have had sufficient amount of time to be able to cool off. So hasn't happened yet, but 
nothing else can happen to this star. It's just a compact core. So nothing else can happen. The only other thing that can happen to it is if you try to give it too much mass. So if it tries to gain mass somehow, but for some, most stars just sitting around, where are they going to get mass from? There's nothing else nearby it. It's not going to be able to gain any mass. So our sun might end up with a core that's, let's just say, half, the mass of, half of its mass, what it has right now. It's never going to be able to gain another star's worth of mass to push it over that limit. Push it over that 1.4 solar mass limit. So it's just going to sit there. Yeah, it might pick up a little bit of dust, a little bit of interstellar material, but not enough. You would need lots and lots of mass. The only case you can get those where it would change is if you have two stars together and really close together where you could actually transfer mass, mass from a star. Adding a planet to it isn't going to help. Adding asteroids, comets, you know, any other material that was left behind isn't going to increase the mass significantly. So then the other big question is, can stars really lose this much mass? What happens to a star that is six times the mass of the sun? Can it really lose, what is the number, 75% of its mass? That's a lot of material to lose out into space. Now normally the planetary nebula, we don't see it as being that much of the, of the star. But this star has to lose, this one that was six times the mass of the sun has to lose 4.6 times. Now it's losing some because it's converting hydrogen into helium. It's a tiny fraction of a percent. So technically it's losing mass, but it's a fraction of a percent. It's not going to lose 75% of its mass converting hydrogen into helium. It's only about seven-tenths of a percent for each reaction. So no matter how many of them you do, you're only losing less than 1% of the mass. So that can't account for it. They do have solar winds, but even the solar wind of the sun isn't going to lose that big of a fraction over its lifetime. The planetary nebula phase can lose some of it as well. But again, that's a lot of material. So do we know exactly how it does this? No. We're not really sure exactly how it does, but we know it happens. Because we can look at examples in star clusters. So, is it possible, do we, can it be done, even if we don't know how it's done yet, we can look at star clusters and say yes. Because we detect white dwarfs in star clusters that are relatively young. And if we look at these, we can look at these clusters and say, well, the only stars that have had time to evolve are those that have six solar masses or more. Remember, the more massive stars evolve quickly, so they all form at the same time. More massive stars evolve quickly. So the first ones to go are those that are 50 to 100 times the mass of the sun. Then you go down to those that are 20 and 25. Then you go down to those that are 10. Then you get down to those that are about 6. If these are the ones that are just evolving off, we can estimate how old, we can get an estimate of how old the cluster is. But we also know that if those are the only ones that have evolved, then stars like our sun haven't begun to have time to evolve yet. If it's, if it's only six solar mass stars, then our sun is, a star like our sun is just getting started going through its life. It might still have another nine billion years to go. However, in clusters, in young clusters like this, we find white dwarf stars. So we know the cluster is young. It formed recently, maybe within the last billion years or even less. And yet we see that these white dwarf stars exist. 
That means even if we don't understand completely the mechanism by which they can lose all this mass, we know that it happens. They must be able to that planetary nebula phase, maybe there's multiple stages to it, it is able to push off not just a solar mass from a six solar mass star, but one and two and three and four, and get rid of 75% of the mass in order to end up with a white dwarf star. But we know that they exist. Seeing that they exist means it has to, nature has a way of doing it. It has to happen because we see that they exist. If we looked at these clusters and didn't see any white dwarf stars, then we might be able to say something different. But because we see them there, we know that it finds a way to be able to do that. So finishing up the first section here, again, when the, the low mass stars, the outer layers, we looked at planetary nebulae last time, they get expelled out into space. And the core contracts down. The core is what's left behind. So that is what we call the remnant, the piece that we actually see left behind afterwards. And that is a white dwarf. That is a white dwarf. That's the core that's there. It's again a million times denser than water, but about the size of the Earth. We've crushed out all of that space in between, uh, in between the atoms. So a white dwarf is, even though it's compressed, it's made of atoms just like you know, we are, just like the stars are. It's got carbon, it's got nitrogen, it's got oxygen in it. And while they're all compressed down to really, really high densities, they still have that, uh, that identity as specific atoms. And then finally, it'll eventually cool off and become a black dwarf star. Again, having not had time yet in the history of the universe for those to be able to form. All right, what time are we? Let me go ahead and at least get started on this one. Let's look at what happens with a higher mass star, and then we'll uh, switch over to lab. What happens in a higher mass star? Well, we looked last time, right? We saw it builds up layers and layers. Something like our sun fused hydrogen to helium, then helium to carbon, and then our sun is pretty much done. It doesn't get a high enough temperature. But really big, massive stars will continue this. So they'll have hydrogen, and then there'll be areas where helium is fusing, and then carbon, and oxygen, and magnesium, and neon, and silicon, and sulfur, all the way down to iron. So what you find is that you can keep doing this if the star is massive enough. So these are those that are more than 10 times the mass of the sun, much more massive stars. They continue this process. The more massive the star, the more layers it's going to build up. Essentially, you get up to iron. Iron is the most tightly bound element. What that means is you can't get any energy out of iron through nuclear reactions. If you, fuse, if you take hydrogen together, smash hydrogen atoms together, make a helium atom, the mass of the hydrogen atoms was a little bit more than the mass of the helium atom that came out. That gave you energy. Here on Earth, you can take uranium and split uranium atoms apart. So you take uranium or plutonium, split it apart. The mass of the uranium is a little bit more than the mass of the products. And E equals mc squared gives you energy. Crash. OK. When you get to iron, it doesn't work that way. If you try to smash two iron atoms together or split an iron atom apart, whichever you try to do, it takes energy. So it takes energy. If you want to fuse those iron atoms together, you can do it. But it doesn't give you any energy. Because when you put them together, you end up with something with more mass. So you had two iron atoms, you fuse them together. Now you made something bigger. But the, but the mass, if you take those two iron atoms and add up their mass and add up the mass of their product, 
it now gained, it gained mass instead of losing a little bit of mass. E equals mc squared, that means it takes energy to do that. So you start sucking energy out of the core, which is incredibly hot. You can eventually do that, but it's going to suck energy out of the core, which means the temperature starts to fall a little bit, means it collapses down more, and it becomes a runaway explosion. That's what's going to eventually give us a supernova, going to cause it to blow up as it collapses downward. But that's what happens is that once you get to iron, iron, there's no way to get any energy out of it. This star is in big trouble if it forms an iron core. Things like our sun can't do this. A star five times the mass of our sun can't do this. They won't get up to that level. Stars 20 and 30 times the mass of the sun will. And they will eventually become unstable. They'll build up that iron core and once you get to that point, it's only got hours, days to live. Once you get that iron core, there's nothing else that can happen. You have no energy source that will, that will affect. And essentially, the whole core can disintegrate. It'll photo disintegrate. All the energy, it'll just collapse inward. And that will push all that material down even denser than the weird white dwarfs we talked about, where teaspoons weighed millions of tons. Well, you get things, you can crush things down even denser because. Remember, it can only hold 1.4 solar masses. So if you get more than that as it collapses down, then not only do you squish out all the space between the atoms, but you squish out all the space inside the atom. <coughs> so you're getting things essentially as close together as you possibly can. What happens is as you push it further and further, those electrons that were holding it up, right, we got to that limit where the table collapses. So now it's pushing those electrons into the nucleus. Electrons and protons can combine together and form neutrons. So it becomes a gigantic ball of neutrons out in space. So not atoms anymore. A white dwarf, actually, the atoms still had their identity. They could be carbon atoms. They could be oxygen atoms. In a neutron star, you lost that. All those atoms are now crunched down together. The electrons have been crushed out uh, into the nucleus. And you will now have a neutron, what we call a neutron star. So it's essentially a big ball of neutrons. So we started off, just to do sizes, we started off with the size of the sun. White dwarf collapses it down to the size of the earth, getting rid of the space between the atoms. If we get rid of the space inside the atoms, we take that and we crush it down to something miles across, 10 miles across. And that's, again, you think about how much empty space there is in everything. That's how much empty space there is inside the atoms. You can take the Earth, can cr crush it down to something the size of a city. That's how much empty space there is there. But then we find another source, another way to hold it up. Because like we had like electrons, right, can't occupy the same space at the same time. That held up a white dwarf. If you get the neutrons close enough together, then the neutrons actually have a pressure that will hold them up. And that can keep the core from collapsing any further. There's a limit to how, mu how massive that can be as well. So just like the electrons, eventually you give it too much mass, it'll collapse. Well, if you try to get too many neutrons there, that will collapse as well. So what's essentially happening here is we're leading up to the state of a supernova explosion. So it goes from something the size of the Earth 
to something about 20 kilometers. That would be about 12 miles across, 10, 12 miles across. So that's it. Now something you could easily walk around, right? It's not that far, 10 miles around. That would be what, about 60 miles? I mean something, it's a couple, what, two, two marathon, a couple marathons worth going around it. Don't try it because its gravity is still the gravity several times the sun, but compacted down. So if you were to try to land on a neutron star, you'd be immediately smashed flat. The gravity is that intense. It wouldn't just be struggling to move. You'd be smashed flat by that. Temperature would be incredibly high too, but even ignoring that, you would not, even though it's a solid surface, it would not be something you could walk on because of the intense gravity. So what happens when this, during the supernova explosion, that core collapses, finally it gets to the point where the neutrons can hold it up, and that forms what we call a neutron star. Now, that's just the core. There's still the rest of the star around it. Well, as everything collapses inward, that material collapses in. So a supernova explosion is really an implosion. It's collapsing down. Eventually, it reaches this limit. It, got, it formed a neutron star. It's now got a real solid surface. And boom, it expl explodes back outward. So that material, as it strikes the core, creates a shock wave that then expels everything else outward and causes a supernova explosion. And in fact, it's called a type 2 supernova explosion. There are two different types that can occur. And type 2 is a massive star at the end of its life. So it formed an iron core, collapsed downward. That material all rushed into the core, hit its limit, right? smashed against it, and bounces back off with incredible energy, expelling all of those outer layers back out into space. So this is an example of a supernova. A uh, supernova explosion is the, well, one of the most, almost, almost the most intense explosion we can get in the universe. Uh, if a star goes supernova, it'll, it could become, a star in our galaxy would become the brightest star we'd see. I mean, it would be visible, supernova explosion could be, supernovae could be visible during the daylight. We haven't had one in our galaxy uh, since the late 1500s. So we haven't had that opportunity, but they do occur uh, on a regular basis. So someday there will be one that will occur, will occur that's one of our, that's a star that's visible, and you'd be able to see it. You may be able to see it during the day. I'm not saying that'll occur during your lifetime. It might be still generations from now. But eventually one will occur. There are some stars that we look at that are possibilities for this. So what is the ultimate fate of a star? I kind of wanted to let me get through this, and then we'll probably break here in just a minute. Um, the final state of an object, what it's going to become, depends on the mass of the core. How much material is there? So not the initial mass. Right, a star might have six solar masses, but that doesn't say that it's going to become a supernova or that it's going to become a neutron star. It's only the core that matters. So if you have a really low amount of material forming, you formed a planet. If you, have a, if you have hardly anything, that becomes a planet less than a certain amount of mass. The initial mass is a little more, you might form a brown dwarf star. Intermediate masses will form white dwarf stars, and that tends to go from stars down to the lowest limit up to about, and it's, this is not as well known, we don't know the exact number, maybe about 10 times the mass of our sun. But again, that's most of the stars that we see. That's almost every star. The vast majority of the stars that we form are small. 
Now it's broken up into three little sections here. If you get to the lowest mass ones, it's a helium white dwarf. It's made up of helium because that star never got hot enough to fuse helium into carbon. If you get a little more massive ones, you might form a carbon white dwarf, which would be where our sun would end up. And you can actually get up to ones that will form things like oxygen and neon and magnesium, a little bit heavier elements. So it just depends on the mass, but they're, they're all becoming white dwarf stars. The high mass stars are what are going to become the neutron stars. Or if you get to the really high mass ones, 30, 40 times the mass of our sun, you can end up with a black hole. And black holes are something we'll talk about in the next chapter uh, a little more, in a little more detail. So I'm going to finish up there. That way I have a good spot. I still have a little bit left in this, chap in this unit of the chapter, but I'm going to save that and we'll cover uh, 23, uh, 23 and then get through 24 on Tuesday. And I will try to get all of those slides up there correctly for you for 23 and 24. Uh, hopefully later today or tomorrow I'll have all of those up there for you. Questions? See, we're doing the, we're doing the normal-ish objects right now. White dwarfs, neutron stars. Wait till we get to black holes. That's, you know, you really want it to you know, hurt your head. Start thinking, start thinking about those. All right. Well, let me go 